Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I've got a question for you about childhood divination practices. Oh, go for it. Did you ever do this thing when you were a kid that I definitely did where you were worried about some question? You wanted an answer like, am I going to get in trouble because I said butthead on the playground? (laughs) And what you do is you go to some book, probably the Bible, uh, or any book, but especially the Bible, and you just open to a random page and you close your eyes and you put your finger on a verse and then you look down and it says, now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. Uh, that's the problem of, about randomly generated Bible quotations is that you might get something really juicy and thoughtful and helpful. You might get something that's just a an incident of, of hideous violence from the ancient past or some sort of, of psychedelic uh, prophecy. You're very likely to get a list of progeny or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, now, I never I don't think I ever did this with the intent of getting some sort of meaning or guidance from the book. But I certainly did it out of out of boredom at times mm-hmm. because uh, growing up in church, you're, you're not everything going on up there is going to be really interesting to a young person. So you, you only have so many things you can turn to. You can poke around in the hymnal, you can poke around in the Bible, or you can doodle a little bit on the program. But you can only get away with so much of that. Right. So you turn to the Bible and there's a, there is a lot of, of interesting stuff in there, a lot of boring stuff in there, just depending on where your fingertip happens to land. Well, yeah, just after that verse I mentioned, I I mentioned a verse from 2 Kings because it seems like very often when you split the Bible in half, you go somewhere like in the later Middle Old Testament with Mm -hmm. a lot of those kinds of verses that are not super helpful. But right after that, you'd get, and he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and like his mother, for he put away the image of Baal that his father had made. Somehow that seems a little more relevant to saying butthead on the playground. Maybe yeah. like the but, the Baal is the butthead. You, you've done something worthy of guilt. Yeah, you simply miscast your initial divination there, you know, like you just needed to be a, a one degree to the left or the right. Well, it highlights the fact that some divination actually does feel more relevant than other divination, even though we would probably say that no divination actually has access to future or special knowledge, right? Yeah, uh, like one one example that comes to mind uh, that lines up with this is, that is something I used to do as an adult is I would just randomly pull up a, a date on the writer's almanac and see what the poem for that day uh, happened to be. Uh, th- this is was a radio program about literary history, and each day that they aired it, it would have a certain poem uh, by by you know a, po- a poet, living or dead. Uh, you know, it, it varied. And since each poem is generally going to speak to the human condition uh, in in some uh, way, shape, or form, there's almost always going to be something you can gain from it, something you can compare to your own experience. And at times, that might feel rather poignant and, and perfect, and just cosmically aligned. 
And because we have such powers of interpretation, we can very easily do that. I mean, I feel like if I'd been trying really hard, I wouldn't need like a good verse like the one about Baal and wreaking wickedness. And I wouldn't even need a good poem. I could probably make some kind of sense out of that weird lineage passage, right? Oh, yeah. And you could make sense out of pretty much any poem they throw at you, right? Yeah, yeah. If you if you try hard enough, if you you sort of twist the the meaning enough, you can you can find something just about any poem to apply to you. And certainly we see plenty of examples of, of pastors and, and other uh, clerical individuals out there who who uh, are following, say, a liturgical calendar and they have a certain passage that they are given for a given uh, Sunday that they have to transform into a message. And uh, a, a skilled uh, preacher will be able to do that. But in a divinatory context, I mm-hmm. wonder why are we so good at this and why do we keep doing it? Why are we so intolerant of uncertainty that throughout history we always keep coming back to these methods of seeking secret information from outside ourselves? Yeah, it's the thing that we fear the most in life and yet we summon it in trying to figure out how we're going to tackle uncertainty. Yeah. And also, like, why do we keep doing it on the assumption like you and I, I know, are not going to be advocating the magic powers of any divination method in this Mm -hmm. episode. So on the assumption that the information provided through divination is no better than chance at being correct. Why do we keep doing it? Is there something actually adaptive or powerful or useful about this process, even though it doesn't actually have magic access to the future? Well, it simply makes choices easier at times. I think we've all been in a situation where uh, maybe it's not as simple as like who who's going to serve first in a game of tennis, but uh, it, it, it becomes too much of an effort to say decide who's going to pick up the, the the tab at a bar, right? It becomes too much of an argument. There are too many social considerations to take into place. Uh, it, it's much easier just to make it random, yeah. just a complete random act. Flip a coin, paper, rock, scissors, whatever, and just come up with with the with, with an answer, and then you don't have to think about it anymore. You got it. The cognitive load has just been dumped. I think that is a great answer, like the, uh, the, the laziness perspective. Mm-hmm. We know Mother Nature is quite lazy, and anything we can do to reduce cognitive loads and take the effort out of the process, that can be helpful. Yeah, it's at the end of the day, you have decision fatigue from all the other decisions you've made, and you just can't decide if it's going to be, uh, you know, macaroni or crab cakes for dinner. Let randomness, let, let a coin, a flip of a coin decide it for me. And yet there are some contradictions in there, aren't there? Because mm-hmm. that seems to make sense for trivial decisions where you don't want to be bothered by stuff. But people use divination methods and, you know, casting of lots and all all that kind of stuff and, and opening the Bible to a random verse to make the most important decisions in their lives. Oh, yeah. that That's almost when you most find yourself seeking this, when you're really desperate, when you really need to know something, when you really don't know what to do about something important then people seek the wisdom of the gods. That's an interesting contradiction, and I want to come back to that later. A second thing that I think is interesting, given the idea that we're not going to be advocating that any books have magic powers or have the power to predict the future, is that nevertheless, some divination methods seem better, more powerful, and more profound than others, even though none of them are actually magic. 
For example, your average newspaper horoscope is – it's kind of hilarious to most of us, right? Like right. If, if you've done some research on the forer effect and making mm-hmm. vague statements that seem like they apply specifically to you, but in fact they apply to almost everybody, you can see these just – the newspaper horoscopes just riddled with them. Right. Or another example would be – and this is an even worse example because there's even less methodology behind it – but the fortune cookie. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, which, which we've, many of us have grown up, uh, obtaining at Chinese restaurants is, of mm-hmm. course, not even a, a legitimate Chinese cultural artifact. Right. Sometimes delightful, nevertheless. It can be delightful. It can be fun. I mean, everybody loves a, a fortune cookie. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a cookie and it has this, uh, sheet of paper in it that, uh, you can talk about with your friends or make a joke about. Uh, but it's pretty lightweight and inauthentic when it comes to considering Chinese divination. Well, to get into Chinese divination, I, I want to say that w- while we're highlighting divination methods, that even while we fully acknowledge they're not magic and they are really just artifacts of culture that play on our psychological vulnerabilities, some feel like they get at something deeper. And I think for me, the prime example of this would be the Chinese classic, the I Ching, the guided divination book, also known as the Book of Changes. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Now, I do want to drive home that if you ever looked up the I Ching and, and started to read about it and then you get intimidated by this big block of symbols, well, uh, trust us because we're going we're gonna to guide you through the I Ching here and we're not going to get too far into the weeds on the particulars of Chinese divination and sorcery. Right. We wanted to look more at like the idea of the I Ching, how it works in its most basic sense, how it fits into the psychology of the human practice of divination and why so many thinkers from ancient Chinese philosophers to Carl Jung have believed it to contain such profundity, despite the fact that it doesn't actually predict the future. It doesn't. It's not magic. It doesn't predict the future, but it does do something interesting. And what does it do? Well, as the name implies, it it speaks to change in our lives and and in the universe, mm-hmm. uh, as the as the title, the Book of Changes implies. Uh, there's a there's a wonderful quote uh, I want to read from Alan Watts, uh, who who spoke and wrote at length about the the I Ching. He said it's almost a mapping of the thinking processes of man. Yeah, he has a lot of interesting thoughts about it, especially in the context of thinking about the yin and yang imagery in mm-hmm. in. Uh, Chinese culture, but Watts also compares the functioning of the I Ching to the uh, logic gates, to the, you know, binary logic in technology. Yeah, totally. I mean, in essence, the Book of Changes is just an ancient book of Chinese divination. Right. You seek the answer to a question and you have a process mm-hmm. and the book will help give you some kind of answer. Right. But it's also much more than that. And it, I think it lacks a true parallel in, in the West in terms of its influence. So one could perhaps make a case for the Bible. Uh, But the Bible is not explicitly intended as a book of divination, right? Right. But I'm speaking beyond like mere divination, just in terms of how important the work is. It's like a a, a root text for a civilization. Yeah. Uh, It's it's hard. I mean, you could make a case for the Bible, but 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 I feel like that's not really a direct one to one between the I Ching and and uh, and whatever version of the Bible uh, one is presenting. Yeah, I'd agree. So this is a classical text that was recorded in the 9th century BCE, and it contains uh, verses that incorporate divination terms and images. It was used by diviners uh, to read sticks or stalks of yarrow plant that were cast six at a time so that they fell in the shape of a hexagram. And the, the practice would have involved lore, art, and mathematics mm-hmm. in interpreting it. 
So it's considered one of the great five Chinese classical texts, and, and it serves as a root text for both Taoism and Confucianism. And beyond that, it also influenced Chinese science and statecraft. Uh, in other words, it's a fundamental work of Chinese culture. And in fact, it alone, among all the uh, Confucian classics, escaped the book burnings of Qin Shi Huang, who we recently uh, discussed at length in an episode. Do you know why it survived? Is there a reasoning behind that, or is that just an accident? I, my understanding is that there may be more to it, but it was, it was just such a fundamental text. Yeah. It was just, it, again, it was, it was a root text. You could not just rip it out of the culture, no matter how many other things you were ripping apart. So like, even if you're a person who's devoted to erasing history and establishing a new world, you, there are some books that maybe seem so pivotal and so important to you as a tool that you can't get rid of them. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like you can rip down the house, but this is the, the foundation. Yeah. So uh, German uh, sinologist Richard Wilhelm, who lived 1873 through 1930, he was a key individual in the history of Western scholarship on the I Ching, uh, as was his son as mm-hmm. well. Uh, he wrote that there were pros and cons to the book's importance. Uh, on one hand, quote, it forced Chinese philosophical thinking more and more into a rigid formalization. Yet he also points out that, quote, apart from this mechanistic number of mysticism, a living stream of deep human wisdom was constantly flowing through uh, the, the channel of this book into everyday life, giving to China's great civilization the ripeness of wisdom distilled through the ages. Well, being a book and not just being, say, a, you know, a method of, of casting animal bones or something mm-hmm. like that, but having written content, we, we do have to acknowledge that does contain inherent directionalness, right? Because it has written words, there are things that this book says and things that this book does not say. And that's different from a totally like a totally freeform type of divination that could say anything at any time, right? Right. The sort of magic eight ball kind of scenario, right? Well, no, I mean, an eight ball has a, has a number of messages too. Mm-hmm. Like it, the eight ball has written content. Yeah. I guess it's less, uh, it's less literary. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, I'm thinking like as opposed to just, uh, sitting somewhere and saying like, all right, what is, what are the gods telling me, uh, that could go in any direction? When you've got a book to guide you, the book says some things in it and it doesn't say other things. Oh, in right. It. Like for so instance, the book it, constrains you. Right. So it, it would be different than say setting in Central Park in New York City and saying, all right, guys, God, give me a sign. And then you look around until you notice something that seems like it might be a message from the divine. Yeah. And it could be anything. It could be a peculiar looking dog. A child looks at you uh, uh, with, a, with, a, with a weird eye or there's a, you know, a large child eating corn on the cob. Well, you know, the, the portent could be anything. <laughs> but I like where your brain went with that. But that was, I'm I, seeing the Robert Lamb black that was a, box that was here. A, that was a John Hodgman reference for our Hodgman fans. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was I one of the portents that. that he lays out. Wait, one, the weird eye or the corn on the cob? The corn on the cob, okay. yeah. Yeah, I believe that was one of the signs of Ragnarok approaching. Now, is there a hexagram in the I Ching of the child with the weird eye? Uh, ooh, I don't know. There might be. Child with weird eye turning. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we should actually explain a little bit more of the specifics of how the book works. So if you are an ancient Chinese philosopher and you want to know something about the future, or you want the answer to a question in your life, how would you use the book? All right. So at this point, we really just need to sort of break down the the, the process yeah. of the I Ching, how it works. So what's the most basic question you could ask of a god or the universe or what have you? Or say a coin. 
You could ask the same question. You could ask it a yes or a no question. Right. Okay. Yeah. Basic binary situation here. Uh, and we can, you can ask this of virtually anything. You could stare at the park and say, all right, give me a sign, God, if the answer to my question is a yes. And then you wait till you see the child with the corn. In a way, it's the most efficient sort of information dense way of consulting anything is yeah. to ask a yes or no question, right? Yeah. And at the, at the heart, the book of changes comes down to this yes, no binary. So the cast sticks form lines and a single unbroken line is a yes while a broken line is a no. But pretty early on, the ancient diviners added additional details to these uh, divined answers, a second line. So now you could have such answers as essentially yes, yes, no, no, yes, no, no, yes. And then a third line produces the eight trigrams. That's the... uh, that's, that's the symbol. When you look at those charts uh, of all these weird lines and, and you're intimidated by the by the I Ching, that's what you're looking at, the trigrams. Okay. And as, uh, as and also if you have, if you've ever seen uh, an image of the yin yang uh, symbol mm-hmm. and it's surrounded by these different uh, line based symbols, then those are the trigrams. Okay. You, you, you typically you'll see that on just the. Uh, the the logo for, say, a martial arts studio in any given small town in America. Uh, but, but, but that also underlines just how widespread these are in Chinese culture and things that are inspired by Chinese culture. Would you say it's so widespread that it makes it even into lots of imagery where the people employing it don't even know what it's from? Oh, I, w- without doubt. Yeah. yeah. So as uh, Wilhelm points out, quote, these eight trigrams were conceived as images of all that happens in heaven and earth. At the same time, they were held to be in a state of continual transition, one changing into another, just as transition from one phenomenon to another is continually taking place in the physical world. And that's the central idea of the Book of Change, uh, a universe defined by changing transitional states. Yeah, I would say that it seems that the primary ideas within the Book of Changes are duality and binaries mm-hmm. and then constant flux between them, right? Right. There, there are two ways things can be and you're always going back and forth between those two ways. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So, so again, we have these eight trigrams at this point and then each one takes on additional meanings. Uh, so one is the father, the other the mother, then first son, second son, third son, and then the three daughters. Uh, one is heaven, one is earth, one is thunder, water, mountain, wind, wood, fire, lake. Uh, other attributes such as strength or resting or penetration or, or, or joyfulness. Mm-hmm. And then these, uh, you take these, these tigrams and then you use them in combination with each other, producing a total of 64 signs, six lines each. Change one line in one of these and you change the situation they represent, uh, you know, such as earth or thunder. Mm-hmm. So we're left with a series of situations expressed as line-based symbols and the movement of these lines change the situation. And in response to each situation, there's a right and a wrong course of action. And this is where the book of changes transforms from a mere book of divination to a book of wisdom. What should I do about the situation just revealed to me? Now, that's interesting. So the book, this is another way in which the content of the book actually matters. It, it's not just a process for giving you random answers to yes or no questions. It also tells you something about the situation and recommends behavior. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty big. It's 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 not merely revealed fate. You have a role to play, and uh, the, the the germinal phase in all of this is key. Uh, this is when things are most susceptible to change. 
uh, which matches up with our experience of reality, you know. And out of this, we get the idea of the Tao, the course of things, the great stirring represented in the yin yang symbol. Uh, and it was used by sorcerers, diviners, uh, Confucius, uh, Taoist, statesmen, scientists, and more, with writings popping up and vanishing over the ages devoted to the various interpretations. And new writings, uh, some of which we'll discuss here, continue to pop up as new individuals and new cultures discover the Book of Changes. All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will bust out an example of uh, I Ching consultation uh, before discussing it in greater depth. All right, we're back. All right, so today we've been talking about the I Ching, this ancient Chinese method of divination, the, the Book of Changes, and uh, and some interesting psychological characteristics of it, how it works. But we, we should show you what it feels like to consult the I Ching and get some results. So one example I came up with last night, uh, for a while I've been working on a writing project, and I just asked the I Ching last night whether I would get any good writing done this coming weekend. Because mm-hmm. you never know. Is stuff going to come up that's going to draw you away, distract you, or am I going to be productive? So I did a virtual version that allows you to use virtual coin flips to generate the hexagram number. So I didn't actually have to flip coins or throw sticks. Yeah, there are a number of different websites that allow you to do this. And some even give you the choice where you can you can physically flip your own coins and record it on the website. Yeah. Which if you if if you're like me uh, and you, uh, you you play role playing games, you prefer actual dice as opposed to just pure digital. Like, it seems wrong to trust uh, the computer world completely. I want my my physical uh, uh, uncertainty to take place on the table. Well, there's definitely a way in which if you actually believe there's something magic about the process, then you people very often default to wanting physical tokens yeah. for, for magical kind of significance. Uh, it's harder to feel like something magic is happening inside the computer just generating random numbers. Right. But uh, either way, let's say I don't believe anything magic is going on. I don't. I use the computer and it generates hexagram 18, repairing decay. (laughs) (laughs) So that bodes well for my writing project. But, okay, so I see repairing decay. Interesting note, the Chinese word here is gu, which is a type of venom-based poison made from, like, combining, I think, scorpions and different insects or worms. Yeah, yeah. uh, Anyone who listened to the episode I did with Christian about poisons a while back uh, will recognize this term. Uh, We discussed it at length, this idea that that, that this mix of magic and actual... uh, pharmacology uh that that, and it's sometimes just like pure superstition attached to various peoples that they have a a magical power of poison or goo now but it's also linked to this idea of decay and that's where repairing decay comes in yeah so here's an example of the kind of thing that the book of changes might say to you if you get hexagram 18 or this is what it will say to you in this english translation work on what has been spoiled has supreme success it furthers one to cross the great water before the starting point, three days, after the starting point, three days. And then also, the wind blows low on the mountain, the image of decay. Thus the superior man stirs up the people and strengthens their spirit. I like that. There's a little uh, something in there for everybody. Uh, but I can see where it, could, it definitely can apply to a writing project because the thing that it's, I instantly think of is, well, it sounds like you've got editing work this, uh, this weekend. Yeah. That sounds like you're, you're going to do some revisions on your existing work and maybe there's going to be less uh, striking out into bold new territory. I think this example shows some of the, 
some of the qualities that I was talking about with the I Ching at the beginning in that even though I believe that there's nothing magic about it, it's somehow useful. It It's doing something that other divination practices don't really do. And maybe part of that is just spurring lines of thought going off in all different directions that allow one to consider possibilities of action. All right. Well, let's do another one. Just just totally off the top of my head. Maybe a more important question. This okay. Time. Will the werewolves rise up tonight to consume us? <laughs> okay. Let's consult. This is going to be the electronic version of the I Ching. And so I'm going to virtually throw the coins. Right? Okay. It's three coins for each line, I believe. It's true. Yeah. So you have to throw three coins six times. Ah, and the arrangement we've gotten sends us to hexagram 53. Chin, development or gradual progress. Development, the maiden is given in marriage. Good fortune. Perseverance furthers. On the mountain, a tree, the image of development. Thus, the superior man abides in dignity and virtue in order to improve the mores. Ah, so, so if we were playing a game of werewolf, this would, <laughs> there's a lot we could, uh, we could, we could, we could gather from this. It seems to imply a certain, uh, uh, patience and dignity in dealing with the villagers, uh, and, uh, in, in, in the idea that we're, we're maybe gonna pull this off in the end if we don't overreact. I mean, it, it's a little haunting because it, it, all these images start to suggest a narrative in the mind, which is that if the werewolves are out there and they could rise up against us tonight, actually they're going to take their time and be patient and wait for a better striking position. So yeah. it might not happen tonight, but it might be worse in the long run for us humans. Yeah, and and again, this is just an off the cuff interpretation by 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 Joe and I. Yeah. But but clearly, uh, someone more skilled with the with the I Ching right. would be going would be applying their own wisdom on top of the existing uh, wisdom in the, the the literary passage. Right. So the, there are whole traditions on how to interpret, and there's more text too. I'm just reading the little epigraph bits. Right. There, there's more mm -hmm. text you can consult, and there are traditions of interpretation. So hopefully at this point we've given you just just a basic idea of the I Ching. And certainly feel free to play around with any of these websites uh, to get uh, a little better idea of how the, this rolling is taking place and what the, the different trigrams uh, look like and then reading the passages to get a, a taste of the, uh, uh, of the literary message uh, for each one. So one thing I think we should look at if we're considering the potential adaptiveness of non-magical divination systems – or uh, even considering the relative merits of the Book of Changes compared to other divination systems is to look at divination generally and see where the I Ching fits into the map of human di divination methods. And one of the sources who's actually been very useful by coincidence, I uh -huh, guess, or yeah. maybe Jung would say by synchronicity, but certainly by coincidence – uh, on this topic is Julian Jaynes, not, yeah. not so much for his bicameral mind theory, but just he's got a very succinct and interesting explanation of the different types of divination and how they occur. Yeah. Now, I mean, certainly his main interest in it was that uh, as he saw it, uh, this was a new way of making decisions by uh, returning to the directions of the gods by simple analogy. Uh, uh, but but even if you totally ignore the bicameral mind theory, I think he's got a pretty good – yeah 
category system for how divination takes place in human history. And he, he picked out there are four sorts, right? You've got omens, you've got sortilege, you've got augury, and you've got spontaneous divination. Now, now augury is, of course, entailing, uh, in, in say, pu- pulling the, the, the intestines out of animals. Right. That would be one type one of One type. So you can cast judgments on the likelihood of a ranged list of things by, for example, looking at the livers of chickens mm-hmm. or something like that. Another category he uses is omens. Omens is the seeking of meaningful information in mundane patterns of events in the world. So a black bird landed on my windowsill. That means death. Oh, yeah. And we're all familiar with these. We still are, are ridiculously susceptible to these. A, a black cat crosses your path. You, spe- you stepped on a crack. Uh-oh. Yeah. Now your mother's in the hospital. All omens, yeah. Yeah. If a fox runs into the public square, the town will be devastated. That's one he cites. (laughs) uh. So those two you've got. Then you've got sortilege, which is the casting of lots, which is answering questions or receiving guidance by reference to unpredictable outcomes of pseudo-random physical events. You know, throwing dice, throwing sticks, throwing animal bones, generating random numbers to get answers or get some kind of wisdom. And we'll come back to this one. Yes. And then, of course, his last category is spontaneous divination, which is going to be the the most free and the most direct, which is just receiving insights directly from the gods into the mind of the diviner. So this would be like a shower thought would be spontaneous divination yeah. if, if if you interpret it. Or you could compare spontaneous divination to being kind of like omens that haven't been pre-established. Hmm. So if like you didn't already know that a blackbird means death, you just see a thing and you think it means something. Uh, you, you see something and you're like, oh, well, that is actually a metaphor for what's going on in our country right now or, yeah. or in my life or exactly. with my automobile. But so the Book of Changes would be an example of sortilage, the, the casting of lots, right? Yes. Uh, I'm going to read a, a passage here from uh, uh, The Bicameral Mind by Julian Jaynes because uh, I, I feel like this just really drives it home. He says of sortilage, quote, It consisted of throwing marked sticks, stones, bones, or beans upon the ground or picking one out of a group held in a bowl or tossing such markers in the lap of a tunic until one fell out. Sometimes it was to answer yes or no, at other times to choose one out of a group of men, plots, or alternatives. But this simplicity, even triviality to us, should not blind us from seeing the profound psychological problem involved, as well as appreciating its remarkable historic importance. We are so used to the huge variety of games of chance, of throwing dice, roulette wheels, etc., all of them vestiges of this ancient practice of divination by lots, that we find it difficult to really appreciate the significance of this practice historically. It is a help here to realize that there was no concept of chance whatever until very recent times. Therefore, the discovery, how odd to think of it as a discovery, of deciding an issue by throwing sticks or beans on the ground was an extremely momentous one for the future of mankind. For because there was no chance, the result had to be caused by the gods whose intentions were being divined. Isn't that fascinating, the idea that randomness was a discovery in history? Yeah, that uh, I mean, we don't know that for sure, but I think that is a reasonable way of interpreting what people generally acted like in history. A lot of times, if you go back into history, people don't seem to believe in coincidence very much. They believe that, like, if something random happened, it happened because the gods made it happen that way. Yeah. And thus, it, for example, 
if you and your friends draw straws as to who's going to have to, I don't know, do, do the unwanted task, who's going to have to sweep up after your poker game's over, the person who draws the short straw is not just losing a game of chance. They were chosen by the gods to sweep up. It might be a punishment. And also the outcomes of all your poker hands were chosen by the gods. Yeah, we, we have no real agency in any of this. Now, that draws me to the fact that we mentioned earlier, I think, that Carl Jung was interested in the I Ching. And for for Carl Jung, I think the I Ching definitely meshed with his idea of the concept of synchronicity, right? Mm -hmm. Jung believed – he had a lot of essentially magical beliefs and he believed that there was an a-causal connecting principle in the universe where – Events could be connected by something other than physical causation, and he called that connecting principle synchronicity. Uh, it's it's kind of hard to explain exactly what he's saying because, for example, you think about someone and then suddenly the phone rings and it's that person. Yeah. And so he would say, well, it's not that your thought caused them to call, but he also would not just say, well, it's just pure randomness. It's pure coincidence. He does think that there's some reason that happened. It's just not physical causation. And in that he saw that principle at work in the I Ching. Yeah. Oh, I mean, we we, just to to break that down a little bit, I feel like we can often – break that that down that that supposed synchronicity in our own lives for instance you're watching a movie or a tv show with uh with a significant other mm-hmm. and there's some frame there's some mention or symbol or emblem that shows up in the show mm-hmm. and since you both have a shared such a shared history shared path shared life it's liable to trigger the same association in both of your minds at the same time and then one mentions hey do you remember that time we went to the Turkish restaurant. And then you're like, I was just thinking about that Turkish restaurant. Yeah. Uh, but it's, there's nothing mystical going on. It's just that there, there, there are certain things between the two of you that are in attunement. Yeah, th- I think that's one good explanation for the feeling of synchronicity. I mean, one thing is just selection bias because mm-hmm. like most of the time synchronicity type events are not happening and maybe when they do happen by coincidence, you just happen to notice them and they seem very significant. But in fact, they're very uncommon. Another explanation could be maybe if they are more common than would actually be predicted by random chance, there are often hidden causative factors just like you're talking about. There are things that did cause this correlation of events that you just can't even imagine, but they are pure mundane physical causes. All right, I think we'll take a quick break, and then when we come back, we will discuss some uh, weird and esoteric beliefs about the I Ching, and then maybe try to answer that question of what could the adaptive value of a totally non-predictive, non-magical prediction book be. All right, we're back. All right, so I think maybe it's time to talk about The Wizard of Psychedelics. Ah, yes. Yeah, Terence McKenna, <laughs> because because we we mentioned earlier that various sorcerers, scientists, etc., have taken up the Book of Changes over the years and found new spins to take on its ancient wisdom. If there is anybody who qualifies as a modern wizard or sorcerer, I think maybe Terence McKenna would fit that category best. Oh yeah, yeah, Terence McKenna. For anyone who's not familiar, uh, was an American ethnobotanist, mystic, psychonaut, author, and he lived from 1946 to the year 2000. He was a noted, uh, again, a noted author, uh, a, a definite counterculture figure. If you look him up on YouTube, for instance, you will find various uh, talks by Terrence McKenna, interviews with Terrence McKenna. I would say 
he's worth looking up for his talks because mm-hmm. even though most of the time his talks are full of stuff that I think is absolute BS, he's so great to listen to. And he, and even while he's saying stuff that I know is probably not true, it's very, uh, it's very inspiring of paths of thought to go down. Yeah, I mean, he's clearly, you listen to him and you, there's a, there's a brilliance to the man. There's a, yeah. there's a, 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 a deep intelligence to Terrence McKenna. Uh, and, and yet some of the theories that he threw out there were, were, were definite pseudoscience. Yeah. Some are a, a little more grounded, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I will say we've received a number of suggestions that we cover his stoned ape theory of human evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, so perhaps we'll come back at some point and do that and, and even do a, a deeper treatment of Terrence McKenna's life. Oh, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't write something off just because he said it. I just mean that, like, as much as I like listening to him most of the time, even though I've enjoyed his talk, it's been full of a lot of magic. Yeah. Uh, and it, for instance, uh, you will find interviews where he's discussing the I Ching. And uh, it's interesting because it, at times he is very, you know, spot on with with his interpretation of the I Ching and what it means and how it matches up with the human experience. And mm-hmm. and I'll read a, a quote from him in just, just a minute. But other times he is, of course, taking it and using it, uh, wrapping it up in his what he called novelty theory. So he picked up the Book of Changes in the 1970s following an experience on psilocybin or magic mushrooms. And he started looking at the 64 hexagrams from the King Wen uh, sequence of the, uh, of the I Ching. And this, is, I think, is often considered like the most traditionally authoritative sequence, right? Yeah. I'll include a, an, an image of this sequence on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Uh, but he... He basically came to believe that the sequence revealed the way time flows through the world, with peaks and valleys lining up with major events in human history, all of it moving towards the end of the time wave, towards the end of time. And guess when he figured that was going to be? Today? No, no. we were, we were Tomorrow? No, no. We're way past it now. But it was November 2012. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Well, I guess that was part of the whole 2012 uh, thing, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. It's considered one of the the major factors there. You know, that along with various interpretations of the Mayan calendar. Uh, now, he even had a, a computer program yeah. that lined up with it, Time Wave Zero. Yeah, McKenna did claim that in some sense the I Ching quote seems to work. That quote against all rational expectation, the carrying out of this random ritualistic activity seems then to give a reading applicable to the unique situation. And I would say that hinging on the word seems there, mm-hmm. I, I could probably actually agree with that. I mean, I don't think that it's actually a magic book, that it actually predicts the future, but it does seem to provide some kind of value. Yeah, like it, I, it cannot, it obviously cannot be used to actually map out the future, but it does line up with our experience of reality and our experience of change in time. Yeah. Now, he went beyond that, actually, though, yeah. which is that McKenna thought that the I Ching was not just a product of culture, but was evidence that the ancient Chinese had somehow gotten ahead of even today's physicists in coming up with what he called an objectively predictive theory of time. Obviously, that does not seem very plausible to me, but mm-hmm. I, I'll admit it's an interesting idea. It would be a cool idea to entertain. Yeah, and when McKenna is talking about it, I mean, he's often talking way above my head yeah. about it, and I think the heads of, of, of many people who are listening to him. Um, he, but he was not approaching it from uh, an area of, of, of ignorance. Uh, no. It's, it's a very complicated theory he's rolling out here. It's just ultimately the domain of pseudoscience or mysticism. Yeah. 
But 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 some of his his quotes about the I Ching, I think, are pretty spot on. Uh, here's one from a 1988 interview. Quote, my conclusions looking at the I Ching have been that it is not possible to know the future, for if it were possible to know it, life would be a determinism and thinking would be divorced from meaning and we would be out of business. But what is possible to know about the future is levels of novelty which future states will fulfill by the happenstance of unpredictable events. Now, this is a formal way of saying we know where the road goes, but we don't know what the scenery looks like. I feel like there are two different ways of interpreting that. Mm -hmm. One way is to interpret him literally as saying that he he thinks the I Ching does in some sense literally predict the future, in which case I think he's wrong. But if he is saying that it contains insights about the way life tends to go, Mm -hmm. I think you could say that 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 could be true. Yeah, I think so. I I feel as as we've sort of demonstrated, you can pull pretty much any of these uh, trigrams out and they will match up with experiences we've had or anxieties we've felt or situations that we've observed in others or read about in the, the history of civilization. But, of course, this may lead many people to ask, well, then does it have any real value beyond just mere literature, beyond mere uh, you know, ancient wisdom in a book? Well, yeah, and also does it have value – we asked this question earlier, I think, does it have value comparable to other divination systems with mm-hmm. content? Like is it actually a, a better or more useful book than, say, consulting your horoscope in the newspaper? Right. Or are they all just going to kind of contain vague statements about human life that are often going to feel applicable to you and give you some kind of feeling of knowing how to deal with things? Yeah. And ultimately, no better than the fortune cookie, which most of the time you just toss it out. But one in a hundred or two hundred will have some sort of meaning and you'll tuck it away in your wallet. Yeah. And so I think people of a secular skeptical frame of mind about divination would tend to assume that since there is no actual way to see into the future, all divination systems are equally useless. They're equally perpetuated by people's confirmation bias and general gullibility. It's kind of like you had, you know, if you have several different computers, computer programmers all write programs to randomly predict the final scores of upcoming football games, you wouldn't expect one random score picker program to work any better than any other, right? Mm -hmm. They'd all be equally useless. But just because people can't actually see into the future doesn't mean that different divination methods created by different peoples are of all the same equal worthless value. In a way, I think divination methods, especially the bibliomancy, like we've been talking about the I Ching, as I said, they have content. And that content, even when excerpted at random, can be on average more or less insightful about the present and the future of the wisdom seeker. So while I think McKenna was grossly overstating the case by claiming that the I Ching is an objective scientific theory of time, I think there can be divination systems in which the contents more accurately or less accurately tend to suggest to people valuable insights about their lives and the situations they face. And in a way, I think this is kind of analogous to the idea that there could be like a good palm reader and a bad palm reader, right? In both cases, palm reading is pseudoscience or it's magic. Uh, There is no correlation between what your palm looks like and what your future would be or there's little correlation. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You might be able to like see somebody's rough hands and think you'll probably continue doing a lot of work with your hands. Yeah. But there's not going to be much actual correlation there. Uh, so the reader has no paranormal access to hidden information, but some palm readers are going to be better at making correct or insightful statements about the person they're reading by using all the standard cold 
reading tricks. You notice body language, you catch hits and build on them and so forth. Or just by being a wiser person and having more thoughtful stuff to say. Now, a, a book doesn't have any way of like reading the body language of the reader and feeding back off that. But some books are written by wiser people who have more insights about the way life goes. Then again, you might wonder, okay, how could that apply to the I Ching since it has, you know, it tends to trade in these like weird, cool, cryptic kind of statements, right? Mm -hmm. could, could those really be all that insightful? I want to mention a personal essay I read in Eon Magazine by a fiction writer named Will Buckingham about his personal relationship with the I Ching over the years. Uh, and he also, in his own way, kind of like McKenna, claimed that the I Ching works, but not in a magical sense. And I think the most interesting thing he writes in the essay is that he thinks the value of the I Ching lies not in it giving accurate or certain predictions about the future – but in providing what he calls better uncertainties. Hmm. He mentions a 12th century poet and scholar named Yang Wanli, who wrote, quote, The profound implications of the Book of Changes are what plunges people of the world into doubts and makes them think. Hmm. And then he writes, I use the I Ching not as a certainty machine, but as an uncertainty machine, dissolving false certainties. It integrates the fact of unknowing into the fabric of my thinking, opening me up to hitherto unimagined possibilities, scattering the monotony of my either-or dilemmas into a myriad of forking paths. I like that, and I want to think about that. Well, to go back to your your example of consulting the the I Ching on your your writing project this weekend, yeah, uh, I can imagine a situation where one is think is not even entertaining the idea of of uh, of doing some revisions, you know, yeah, and then consulting the I Ching seems to suggest that you should do revisions, or you know, and it it makes you contemplate a path that you had already decided to steer away from, and it makes you reconsider your choices. I think that is a profound insight. I want to think about the idea of introducing randomness into behavior. So most studies show that humans are unable to spontaneously generate randomness. This is often demonstrated if you get some people into a room and say, I want you to create a random list of digits. Can you do it, Robert? Give me a random list of digits. Oh, what? One, three, six, nine, two, two, three, eight. Not very good, is it? Well, I don't know. It, it fell well, random as I was belting it out. Well, but, but I did also I – could, I could sense myself sort of casting – about for numbers. Yeah, yeah. Most studies find that the lists people create of these digits are in mathematical terms very non-random. The brain has what it interprets as an internal randomness generator. Like if I ask you to say a random word, you'll be able to say a word that feels random to you. But in fact, it might not be so random. It might be actually pretty easy to predict what kind of words you're going to say. And in the case of listing numbers, it is provably very easy to predict what number you're going to say because people have done it with computer models. So I want to look at a study from PLOS 1 in 2012 by uh, Marc-Andre Schultz et al. What they did in this study was they, they did this like digit listing thing and they, they came up with a computer model using a principle called Levenstein-Damerau distance 
to look at a list of supposedly random digits generated by a human subject and then predict what the next number in the sequence would be. The model was able to do this at a rate much better than chance. So if the numbers were really random, they would have, the model would not have been able to do any better than chance, right? And the percentage chance you would expect would be 11% of the computer model getting the numbers right. But in reality, the mean prediction rate of this program was 27%. This means that the lists of digits people generated were not random. They contained patterns that the human generators were simply not aware of. And it gets worse. The patterns were also person-specific. Not only could this computer model look at a list of random numbers generated by humans and do significantly better than chance predicting what numbers would come next, it could identify patterns unique to each individual subject. So like, uh, if Dale just said six, you can be pretty sure he's about to say three. Ah. But to extrapolate isn't a lot of life like this. Like you find yourself with the urge to do something spontaneous, to seek novelty, but what do you actually do almost all the time? Yeah, you fall back on pre-existing patterns of behavior. Yeah, exactly. You do what you've done before, even when you think you're being spontaneous. Like this is a horrible example, Robert. I know you've had this experience. I have. Do you ever sit down with somebody and say, let's watch a new movie. Let's find something (laughs) new to watch. And you go through some complicated, drawn-out selection process to find a new movie you've never seen before. And you start watching it only to gradually realize, wait a second. Didn't we try to watch this same movie a few years ago and we didn't like it, so we stopped halfway through? I've had that experience with other people. I I tend to remember – it's one one of the few things I can I can count on myself to remember is whether I have seen a film or tried to watch it before. But but as far as the long drawn out selection process, certainly there's so many times where you end up just scrolling through Netflix or Hulu until you just you just sort of time out on it. You give up and you just pull up something yeah. that you were already watching and maybe weren't that into or just something you've seen before. Right. But so this is just about what to watch. And even this shows that we are so much more patterned and predictable, even when we're trying to seek spontaneity. Of course, randomness and novelty are so much more important than that. And mm-hmm. they're so much more important than just finding an interesting new movie like at the level of technology and science random enough pseudo random numbers and processes are necessary for accurate statistical sampling for computer modeling of complex phenomena and definitely for cryptography at the level of biology randomness is necessary in order for organisms to evolve the primary driver of evolution is natural selection picking from among random mutations. If you don't have enough random mutations, if your mutation rate is too low, you can't adapt, you can't evolve, you can't create a diverse biosphere. You could live in a world of fragile, cloned organisms highly vulnerable to extinction. So I wonder if there are analogies to this in the behavior of complex animals. Like, are macroscopic random mutations of behavior important for the quality and success of an individual's life. So anyway, I think this kind of brings us back to the question from earlier of how predictively worthless divination methods could still be adaptive, how they might be useful even though they're not magic. What if divination methods like the I Ching are useful because they introduce an element of randomness into our behavior and motivations that we would not be able or willing to introduce on our own? Yeah, I mean, they could be the only way to introduce true randomness into your life. Uh, because even, you know, certainly we live within chaotic systems, but 
but even within those chaotic systems, there's a there's a fair amount of uh, dependability. Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, we build whole structures for our lives to eliminate unpredictability, right? Yeah, and also playing with a certain amount of probability. Yeah, um, like I, I, I have to be prepared for various weather scenarios to take place in the next week, but I'm fairly sure it's not going to snow. We'll see. Um, you know, these sort of, uh, these sort of considerations come up time and time again. Yeah. But if you have a true random, uh, randomness generator, then you are going to have to think, well, what if it did snow? What's my plan for the, for the snow day next week? Yeah. And, uh, and, and that can force you to consider possibilities that just would not be there if you did not have something like the, the I Ching to turn to. Yeah, exactly. So the way I'm thinking about this is that what, what if divination methods are essentially a way we've come up with for encouraging mutations in our behavior yeah. in the evolutionary sense, allowing our lives and societies to test new ways of living and potentially culturally evolve. I can't help but come back to the game of werewolf that we just kind of haphazardly mentioned earlier. Yeah. But in the game of, the, of werewolf, it is random. It is completely random. Uh, who is going to be the werewolf in a given game? Mm-hmm. Which individuals will be the villains of that round of play? And that pure randomness is is one of the the main reasons the game is so engaging. But it brings out things in people. Mm-hmm. Like the the randomness can allow you to suddenly have to be the deceiver when you wouldn't normally play that role in life. That's not part of your established patterns of behavior. It draws out things in your personality that you wouldn't have accessed otherwise. Yeah, I mean, God, and then there's, uh, I don't want to talk too much about gambling and all of this, but, <laughs> but imagine like the weirdness of the lottery uh, in considering this. Somebody, we're just going to make somebody a millionaire just, just randomly and see what happens, see uh-huh. how it affects everybody. It's, it it's, seems like it often doesn't work out too good. Well, and no, but for other people, for me, I feel like I could handle it. Uh, but that's what we all tell each other, right? <laughs> I guess that, yeah. But, but I'm e- different. Even playing the lottery, though, is a is kind of a, a contemplation of that uncertainty. What right. if it happened? I mean, generally, that's the only option that someone is fantasizing about when they play it. Right. What if I win? What will that be like? Now, a counterfactual to this hypothesis that I just put out there that uh, divination methods might be valuable because they introduce randomness into our lives is that you could think that like in nature, most mutations are either either have no effect or are harmful. Right. But I wonder if there is an overall selection effect on introducing randomness into behavior because really good deviations from patterns of behavior are, are beneficial enough to keep the whole thing in the in the black. Well, it's, you were bringing up at the very beginning of the episode the idea of pulling up random passages from the Bible. Yeah. And we can just apply this to any book that you yourself consider a, a book of wisdom. It could be it could be any religious or secular work. Mm-hmm. So the first five times you do it, you could get nonsense. You could get what would be on a biological level just a disastrous mutation. Mm-hmm. But but then you keep going until you hit the one that is novel that you hadn't thought about. Uh, and I mean, that's what makes the process worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but that, what you just said also makes me think about how this hypothesis could inform the idea that some divination methods are actually more adaptive than others, even mm-hmm. though none of them are actually magic. None of them can actually predict the future. Some of them do feel more useful. And this could be because, for example, spontaneous divination, uh, would not 
allow you to depart from internally established mental patterns, right? If you're just looking at stuff and saying, what does this mean from the gods? You're probably, you're just drawing on the same types of thought processes that would normally guide your behavior, right? Yeah, yeah, you're not really reaching outside yourself for that answer. Sortilege, on the other hand, may be more useful for this kind of thing because if you're employing sufficiently pseudo-random processes like rolling dice or gyro sticks or flipping coins, then you and then you use those numbers to consult sections of a pre-written text that you can't edit and you didn't create you are introducing external random factors into your life that you have no control over now there might be to some extent an ability to sort of correct for that randomness by your process of interpretation but i wonder if some of the value of the the interpretive traditions about things like the i ching make it harder for you to ignore the random aspects of these uh, of these divination outcomes, right? They make it harder for you to rationalize away novelty and make you sort of like face the randomness. And of course, randomness can be uh, pleasant. It can be terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> depending on uh, on the details of what you're contemplating. Totally true. Now, I one last thing I have to kind of wonder about, though, if this is true. If it is true that uh, methods like this work by introducing randomness into your life and that can in many cases have some kind of benefit, do you lose the benefit if you understand that process? <laughs> hmm. Like if you don't actually think that the wisdom provided by the I Ching is some kind of magic thing delivered by the gods, if you think it's – well, this is just a random process that I'm using to introduce some creative novelty into my life, does it still have the same power to do that? Ah, uh, so yeah, so, so the idea here being that you would have to buy into the I Ching to a certain amount to get anything out of it. I mean, and I'm saying I wonder if you would have to. I feel like the answer to that is going to vary from individual to individual. You know, mm -hmm. it like to what to to varying degrees. I feel each individual is able to turn to something like the I Ching and and sort of divide it. You know, and understand that okay, this is not the voice of the divine, but I can find some wisdom in it, you know? Like, to what extent can the does the individual value insight in literature or in historical texts? Yeah, that's uh, a good point. Or, or to, to what extent do they view randomness as a beneficial uh, aspect of life and not just pure chaos to be avoided? Right. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess some people would get random insights or random charges to action and they would tend to ignore them because they break patterns of behavior. Some mm -hmm. people are just – we're very set in our ways, aren't we? Yeah, and, and change is terrifying. <laughs> but but that's that's all that's the crazy thing is that that is what this is all about. I mean, it's the book of changes. It's the book of dealing with the the rate of change in our lives in the universe and how one is supposed to react accordingly so as to avoid the more uh, detrimental situations. It's the book of entropy. Yeah. All right. So there you have it. Hopefully we gave you a lot to chew on here along with just a basic uh, understanding of what the I Ching is and how it fits in with other divination practices from around the world. If you'd like to reach out to us uh, and discuss any of this, well, hey, you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram. Uh, we're also, of course, at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That is where you will find all the episodes of the podcast, uh, as well as the links out to those social media accounts. Thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex and Tari. And thanks to our guest producer, Paul, for stepping in today. Paul, you're doing great. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us about this episode or any other, or if you would like to let us know 
know a topic that you think we should do in the future or just to say hi, you can always email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.